I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. I am so delighted to have here with me Ashley Norman. She is a former private investigator and currently a civil rights investigator in Washington, D.C. And spoiler alert, she's also my sister. Welcome, Ashley. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) It's so fun to have you here. To listeners, you may not be able to differentiate between our voices. That is going to have to be your problem for this episode. That's a genetic issue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So best of luck to you. Godspeed. So, Ash... First, we're just going to dive straight into Agatha Christie and tell me how you came to her work. Well, uh, I probably came to her work much like you came to her work. Mm-hmm. Um, as you might know, our, we're from a family of big readers. Yep, both uh, big and readers, big yeah, readers. Big, big just big, tall, tall readers. Big, tall readers. Um, and the biggest among us, our father, <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, he has a voluminous library filled with mostly police procedurals. Um, and Agatha Christie was in amongst them. And mm-hmm. I read a bunch when I was a teenager. And then also when I was traveling, she seems to be the author most internationally available yeah. uh, in English uh, English language books. And yeah. so I ended up reading a lot of her books when I was traveling uh, in my younger adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've come back to it through this wonderful podcast and project. <laughs> I forced you to come back to You her. did not force me, but <clears throat> I did clean out my local library of Agatha Christie books and ordered others from the neighboring libraries. And uh, to the extent where I took out like 20 Agatha Christie yeah, books in the library and was like, oh, boy, that's a lot of Agatha Christie books. <laughs> and then, right. yeah. And then she said, why are you getting so many? And I said, my sister has a podcast. And she said, what's a podcast? And you were like, I am way over my head with this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, it's a radio show. Yeah. I hear you've been telling the people of D.C. about tea and murder. Everywhere. Everywhere yeah. I go, I'm walking around, hands in the air, 
books in each hand, screaming teen <laughs> murder around the streets of D.C. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry to the listeners of D.C. for what you've had to go through. I hope you'll still listen to this podcast. They will. Yeah. I'll be there <laughs> making sure. So you came to Agatha Christie's work. Now, tell us a little bit about your background as a private investigator. You're currently a public investigator. Yes. But you were a private investigator in both New York City and in Washington, D.C., where you currently live. No, I worked for a nonprofit, but doing investigations okay. doing in, investigation. in New York. Yeah. Uh, I was a private investigator for a little over three years, um, like nearly three and a half years in D.C. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, I was contracted by attorneys to do criminal uh, criminal defense cases. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of like high-level felony and mostly homicide cases um, where I was – Doing the what I like to describe as kind of the opposite of the police's job. Mm-hmm. They they do their investigation, and then as uh, you know, the legal system is adversarial in the U.S. And at, my role was kind of to go in and do our own investigation from the defense side and see if we could sort of construct a um, a different narrative for what had taken place and provide reasonable doubt. Okay. So, and how often were you wearing a trench coat? <laughs> I was usually wearing a leather jacket. So much cooler. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Uh, it was very cool. It was actually our mom's old leather jackets. <laughs> very cool leather jacket, yeah. like an 80s style. Yeah, very yeah. very 80s vibe. Big shoulders. Yeah, yeah. I also had a side pony <laughs> <laughs> and leg look. warmers. It's a good look for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you were doing private investigation. And what does, other than working adversarially with against the police, what does that entail for the most part? Um, well, it can entail a lot of different things uh-huh. depending on the type of work that you're doing. I mean, okay. there are private investigators that do the classic, you know, sit outside somebody's house and see if they're cheating on their wife um, or try and track down somebody whose child is missing or, you know, whatever the case might be, find mm-hmm. contact information for somebody that they can't get in touch with. Um, but for me, that was mostly – I was mostly doing the criminal defense work and then sort of doing some other nonprofit uh, sort of oriented work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So diving into the book we've talk, we're going to be talking about, which is The ABC Murders. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I'm just going to give a little bit of background and then we're going to talk about ABC Murders. We're going to talk about your take on the private investigation of this particular mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. And, uh, and some other fun stuff. Uh, So the ABC Murders was published in 1936, which was the same year as Murder in Mesopotamia and Cards on the Table. Uh, It was published the year after Death in the Clouds, and those are all Poirot's. Uh, as we've discussed a lot on this podcast, the 30s and the 40s were like prime Poirot time. Um, they were all times are all, prime all, Poirot time. Well, this was when this is when Agatha Christie was really cranking them out. They were incredibly popular, and all of the books I just listed were very popular. Um, this is one of the only Christie novels to combine first person and third person narrative. The first person narrative is Hastings, Captain Hastings, um, and he is kind of telling Poirot's story as he often does. And then there's this kind of interstitial of uh, third-person narrative following the movements of Alexander Bonaparte Cust, ABC, <laughs> uh, who you might recognize from the title, uh, in the third person. So uh, the ABC Murders has been adapted several times, first in 1965, in this kind of like murder comedy mystery called Alphabet Murders, which was starring Tony Randall uh, as Poirot. And uh, then, of course, there was the David Suchet, BBC, version in 1992, which Ashley and I actually watched last night. Um, And that one is fairly faithful to the original with like a couple of small changes, uh, including the uh, omission of Inspector Chrome, which I 
um, actually really enjoyed because I think he's kind of an annoying character. Oh yeah. Um, in 2005, there is a Japanese adaptation called Meitante Akafuji Takashi, starring Shiro Ito, and that um, was also very popular. And then in 2009, there was a French adaptation as well. Um, and finally, in 2018, the BBC had the ABC Murders starring John Malkovich, which I haven't seen, but Ashley has, uh, as Poirot. And it was written by Sarah Phelps, who's done a lot of adaptations for the BBC of Christie works lately, including the upcoming Pale Horse. Um, and the ABC Murders was very, very well received when it came out. It's remained a fan favorite since its publication. Uh, it's got a really interesting twist. It's tight writing. It's really one of her one of her best, I think. And there's a reason it's been adapted so many times. So, Ash, why don't you give us a brief synopsis of the ABC Murders? Of course, uh, <laughs> that is <laughs> what I'm of, here to do. That is part of this podcast. You have to do it. Done. Um, so, the ABC Murders. Starts off with Hastings coming back from a wonderful trip to Argentina, and he talks to his great friend Poirot, who's been receiving um, letters addressed to him that talk about murders that are going to happen in the future. One letter. He's received one letter at the time. And then these alliterative murders start to take place. Um, and three murders happen, all in uh, a town A, a town that starts with B, a town that starts with C. Um, with alliterative people that are killed, people with alliterative names. <clears throat> and, um, oh, sorry, but, <laughs> but uh, with uh, all the people with alliterative names. And then um, the families of the people that have been murdered are kind of brought together in an Avengers style group to figure out who the murderer is. Mm -hmm. And it also follows this uh, gentleman, Alexander Bonaparte Cust. Um, and basically, Poirot is trying to figure out what the motive is behind these murders and why he's getting these letters. And there's an excellent twist, as is Agatha Christie's uh, specialty. Mm -hmm. And I won't spoil all of it. Read it. It's actually it's a very good book and it is tightly <clears throat> written. Yeah. And it's a good twist. And it's um, it is it is a format that she does a few times, which is like have a couple of murders in order to obfuscate one specific mm. murder. But this is her first time doing it, and I think it's probably her best time doing it. I think it's really well conceived and um, really well laid out as well. Um, so in terms of the book, uh, I think one of the, the reason I wanted you and I to talk about this is because for me that book has such a great example of the way that Poirot works with the police in the mm. context of the books. In your experience, is that typically how private investigation would work in tandem with the police? Um, for the work that I did, definitely not uh -huh. um, because I was doing criminal defense work and that is um, adversarial often to the police. And so there were very rarely does a police officer want somebody who's trying to prove that their investigation is insufficient to sort of bop along with them. Um, but in, for other people, that might not be the case. I'm kind of come I come to investigation from a slightly different standpoint than a lot of people. A lot of private investigators are former law enforcement and do have tighter connections to law enforcement right. and often aren't doing criminal defense work. Um, what, what else would they be doing? They would be doing, you know, like, you know, missing persons cases, mm -hmm. um, sort of those sorts of little tasks of, you know, finding, collecting information about somebody who isn't telling the truth about some something, um, all sorts of stuff. We would also do like employment law cases as well. Mm -hmm. So making sure that somebody a company is interested in hiring is, um, who, you know, a good a good choice, a good hire. 
um, doing background checks on people, uh, background checks on witnesses that are going to testify in cases, all that kind of stuff. So there's a, I mean, it's a huge range of things that that it can go into it. But your experience was not that the police were super happy to see you when you rocked up. No, they were not. Super, and honestly, I usually didn't see the police except at mm-hmm. trial, right. trial or hearings, um, because. My I came in at a much later stage because I was doing criminal defense work and I was being brought in for these like kind of escalated high level felony cases that were moving towards trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes I was coming in years into these cases. Right. Um, so the police had sort of already closed their files except for when they're called back into the to the trial or hearing or right. whatever. And you were saying earlier that um Often an investigator acts as kind of like a fact witness in Mm. a case, which I thought was really interesting because that is really not something that we see a lot in, I think, detective fiction in general, but in... um, in Poirot's case in particular, he'll often testify in an inquest, but very, very rarely in an actual case, Um, whereas your experience seems to be that that's often what's called for as an investigator. Yeah. And even now, I mean, that's really in the the type of investigation I do now, that's often what I'm brought in for is that they want somebody who's a professional that can testify as a fact witness. I'm not going to be an expert because those are the people that you have to come in and speak about forensics or, you know, these mm-hmm. sorts of very specific things that they're, you know, have, have credation uh, or different, you know, uh, certifications in or whatever the case might be. But mm-hmm. I'm brought in because I'm the a fact witness who can speak to how I've looked at the case objectively mm-hmm. and who I've spoken to and what the people that I've spoken to have said to me. And for listeners who might be interested in being investigators, what is your background? Like, how did you become an investigator? Uh, well, like many people in the world, I fell into it kind of unexpectedly. I don't think I really went into my career with the intention of being an investigator mm-hmm. in 10, year, 10 years in. <laughs> Here's where I'm at. But um, my background is in forensic anthropology. That's what I have a graduate degree in. And um, I was always really interested in uh, puzzles and figuring things out and anthropology and yeah. how people sort of work and develop with each other. So like speaking of puzzles, I think, you know, one of the kind of elements of Poirot is he can kind of tell when people are lying. And that's how he goes. It's a lot of intuition elements of the way he approaches things. Is that is have you found that to be the case in your investigation as well? Oftentimes I'm asked to give my opinion on how people come across. Mm-hmm. Like I really come to it as like I'm not trying to be convinced of anything. I am trying to see what the different sets of facts and narratives are mm-hmm. and what those what you know they could kind of play out as together. Yeah. And so I more come into it and say, you know, I think this person will come across as credible. I've spoken to them and I think that they come across as though they're telling the truth and the facts that mm-hmm. I've found uh, in relation to the case support that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very rarely am giving a judgment on whether or not I think that they're factual or not. It's really like what the evidence I have personally looked at tells me mm-hmm. along with, uh, you know, whether it's supporting what they're saying. Okay. That's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the the legend of the all-knowing, well-known private <laughs> detective, a la Poirot. In your experience, does that actually exist within industry circles? I think there are a lot of people that want it to exist. <laughs> want it to be themselves. Yeah. I yeah. think there's a lot of people that they fancy themselves that. Okay. They have a, uh, you know, maybe a, an idea in their head that, that that's what they could be or that's what they'd want to be. Mm-hmm. But if, in my opinion, if you're a good investigator, that's not really... You're not in it for your own 
fame and and, and I don't think Poirot is, right? Like he, he that's not really he likes it, but yeah. I don't think that's what he's in it for. No, I would agree. Yeah, and I think that the people that go into being a private eye because they think it has like a cachet to it or, yeah. you know, probably not getting as far as they think they're yeah. getting. I mean, for me, it's always been interesting because, you know, you think about like Sherlock Holmes or, I mean, particularly Poirot, he's mm. like in the gossip pages. Yeah. You know, he's like a celebrity. Um, and then the books kind of follow him to a period where he his star is waning, but mm. he's still kind of considered a famous person. And I just don't see that being possible for a real investigator. Mm. I think that there are some people that are – that are more well-known investigators. Like you okay. read about these kind of Hollywood-type investigators. Okay. But then you always – like stuff always comes out about them down the line. You're like, you're not so good at investigating <laughs> yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're – like for me, like I don't have social media. Like I don't – like there, you sort of need to be removed to a certain extent yeah. from the job in order to do the job well. Mm-hmm. Um and for like for me, that's sort of what I think aids you along the way to. But you know, to each their own. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that the all-knowing private eye is probably more of a historical, uh, you know, fallacy yeah, and a narrative device. I mean, it's what makes for them sure. interesting. Right? For sure. I mean, yeah. you can't write a book about somebody who like quietly sits and is like, oh, well, I'll write down that thing that I saw <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that data. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I mean, you were talking just now about like kind of tricks for being a good investigator. And one thing that I've found throughout the Poirot books is he always says that if you let people talk about themselves, that is typically how you'll get the most information because people enjoy talking about themselves ultimately, even if they don't, even if they shouldn't. Mm. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, I I don't know if it's people do enjoy talking about themselves, but I also think a lot of it, especially for the types of cases I worked on, a lot of it is people don't get the opportunity to talk about these things. Yeah. And for, you know, high level felony or homicide cases, oftentimes I would be the first person that they had spoken to about this thing happening. And Mm. it was really that they needed to tell their story, that they needed to talk to somebody about what they had seen or how they felt or what happened to them. And so it oftentimes ends up being like almost a therapeutic uh, opportunity for mm-hmm. witnesses to say, you know, this is how I felt and this is what I saw and this is, you know, I want that sort of to be validated. Mm. Interesting. And and do you find that kind of those when you give people like silence, they will typically fill it? Yeah, that's definitely a, like a trick of the trade, if you mm-hmm. will. Like people uh, People want to feel comfortable and will go out of their way to make themselves comfortable. But also I try to make people comfortable when I speak to them. And I think yeah. that is – that's kind of a um, a good trait for an investigator in general. Like mm-hmm. most of the good ones that I know – I don't know if I fit into that category. But most of the good ones that I know mm-hmm. make people comfortable when they talk to them mm-hmm. um, so that – you know, they're not filling the silence because they feel awkward. They're filling the silence because they want to keep talking to you. Mm. Okay. They just want to get it off their chest. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Not everybody. Some people will not tell, you know, oftentimes people will hold things back if they, Mm. especially if they think it makes them look bad or it's questionable or they made a bad decision. They may not tell you everything, but they'll tell you their version of the truth. And you gather enough versions of the truth and you create... Um, you know, a very vivid uh, scenario. Mm. 
And do you feel like you've gotten pretty good at knowing when someone's holding something back? Yeah, I mean, I don't always know what it is, or, no, of I, or I don't, and not I clairvoyant. <laughs> well, a good investigator, yeah, a very good investigator, <laughs> is clairvoyant. I'm a medium as well. <laughs> Five dollar palm readings. Uh, Do that later. I know. Um, no, I, I think um, I've gotten good at letting people tell me what they want to tell me, and then doing my research afterwards, mm-hmm. and. If you do your homework and you talk to everybody you need to talk to and you find out who hasn't been talked to, you know, you you can get a lot of information that way that you just have to put in the legwork to get. Mm. Interesting. And so I'm always fascinated by the level of access that Poirot gets in his books. Mm-hmm. Um, like the investigators are always just like, yeah, like come with us for these suspect interviews or like come see the body. Um, what do you think? What what is what's going on with you? Um, in your experience, is that level of access realistic? Well, I'm often not with the police, and I'm coming yeah. in like after the fact. In my job now, I'll get more immediate access, yeah. but there, like as a private investigator, not so much because I was coming in so much later. But I got a lot more access by just showing up. Mm-hmm. Like if I if you go and knock on people's doors or you know follow every lead down. You'll end up talking to people and getting access to things that you never thought, and you really get a look into these people's lives in a way that you're not going to otherwise. Yeah. I think it ties into your question before of, like, people want to be able to tell their story. Yeah. And I do think in the ABC murders in particular, that is part of why Poro brings everybody together. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not so much that he thinks they're going to solve the case together. It's that Mm -hmm. he feels like if he gets them talking enough, there's something will come out that will be helpful. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's even like with Hastings, right? Like yeah. he's constantly getting hate. Like he he doesn't think Hastings is brilliant. He likes no, he him. He's a dummy. Yeah, he likes him. But uh, there's an, so many instances where Hastings yeah. says something off the cuff, and he's like, "Ah, you d- you be wonderful dummy. You yeah. solved the case, and you I don't know. even know." <laughs> exactly. He's like the stupidest thing you just ever have said has made me realize I know everything about this case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> So that is your experience, that a a sweet dummy will come along and solve it all for you? If you're lucky, a sweet (laughs) dummy will solve all your cases. Amazing. Yeah, well, I I do think um, that is also an element of particularly the um, Poirot-Jap relationship, which is that Jap is always like, hey, Poirot, there's this case I thought you might really like. Uh, you'd be might be interested in. I don't need the help, but like I just thought it would be fun for you personally. <laughs> and I also think it's so funny that Hastings yeah. is always mad that Jap does that. And I'm yeah. like Hastings, you also are just like <laughs> along for the ride. I you know. don't know what's going just on. Just a hanger on. Yeah, they're yeah. all hangers on, and Poirot is just like you know brushing his mustache and trying to solve the case. Yeah, and you know putting things back in their place on shelves. Yeah, and it's interesting in the ABC murders because um, it's one of the only times where they have an adversarial cop as well. Mm. Uh, Chrome comes in and he really doesn't like Poirot. He's like this old timer is a, like he's a loser. He doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Everything he says is so convoluted and strange. He's a foreigner, da, da, da. Um, And there are other times when uh, official men or cops will kind of say behind their hands, like, oh, Poirot is past his prime or whatever. But it's very rare to have a cop who's working almost like in direct opposition mm. to whatever Poirot is saying as part of the story. Um, so I thought that was an interesting element of the ABC murders, which is why I thought it was kind of an interesting one for us to talk about, because there are these two elements of cop that Poirot is dealing with. 
Yeah, I think that is interesting. And also, actually, in the John Malkovich Poirot mm. and that adaptation, Jap is not to give a spoiler, but it's within the first like five minutes. Spoilers but... <laughs> for the ABC murders with just starring John Malkovich. Yeah, in the first ten minutes, Jap dies, yeah. and then the rest of the um, miniseries is with uh, Rupert Grint as Chrome, who mm-hmm. actually he's great in it. Not yeah. just because I had a huge crush on Rupert Grint as a child. Yeah, for all the <laughs> listeners out there, Ashley used to celebrate Harry Potter his birthday every year and make him a cake. I did yeah. indeed. It was very cute. Yeah, it was only a few days after my birthday, so it was really... <laughs> <laughs> what is Harry Potter's birthday? Uh, July 31st. Okay. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe's July 23rd. I don't know Rupert Grant, but <laughs> I did have a big crush on him. Yeah. Um, He's so cute. Yeah, and we're from the Boston area, and little redheaded boys are abundant in that area. <laughs> <laughs> Abundant. Yeah, all the little like Irish redheaded boys, and I had crushes on all of them. Right. So, um, but he's actually great. Uh, You you don't need to keep everything about my crushes on redheaded boys, but he was. We're going to keep that in for sure. Uh, But he was great as Chrome, and it's very adversarial because there is none of the and Hastings isn't in it either. So it really Mm. is just. Um, John Malkovich's very weird Poirot. Yeah. Good, but weird because right. that's kind of the Different. actor that he is. Yeah. And then this very adversarial and him kind of trying to win Chrome over. Mm. Oh, okay. So that is an element of it. He's actively trying to win Chrome over. He's not actually trying to win Chrome over, but okay. I think they're trying to find mutual respect so that they can work both work on the case okay. and sort of eventually get there. Got it. He's not like, you know, kind of playing up to him or anything. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because in the, you know, David Suchet version, which we watched last night, which is fabulous. So good. He's just the best. He's, I mean, we stand David Suchet on this podcast. But um, I've never stand anyone, but I think I would stand David. I would get on. I, I would like. I will learn what stand means in order to stand. I David will Suchet. literally learn what stand means, and I will get a Twitter account. Which What's I do David not Suchet, have. Suchet's birthday? Uh, Come on, real stands know. Real oh, stands know. that's embarrassing. He's. <laughs> I know that he is. You know, he's a, a Libra. <laughs> he's an, I don't know what he is, but I know he's a great man. And it's Sir David to you. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, it is. It is actually <laughs> Sir David to, to everyone. It's Sir David to everybody. Um, yeah, but it, they, they in in that ad- adaptation take out Chrome, mm. and I think the reason that they do that, I, I mean, just for you know. You got to take out some people to kind of and Chrome's an easier like yeah. he he's an easy cut I think if you're yeah. if you're staying close to the true plot of the of yeah, the book exactly. whereas the Malkovich adaptation is not it's a very different more sordid darker yeah they have a very different backstory for um, like what Poirot was doing in Belgium before yeah. he came to the UK so yeah I think that's right it's like if you want to take out any conflict mm. if you want to make it just a little bit easier he's an chrome is an easy character right. to remove yeah and the bbc like Suchet versions i think are not looking for added conflict in the in tone no but what i will say about that adaptation is um and we were talking about this when we watched it is that it's such a beautifully quiet version mm. um and oh yeah that one scene yeah and and this is uh, this is a book that actually has quite a lot of like big scenes in it in it the does. sense of there's a lot of gatherings. There's a lot of we all have to go to Doncaster, yeah. and, you know, like um, kind of these a lot of locations, a lot and... of locations, a lot of lots of police going mm. to a place to kind of figure out what's going on and try to prevent a massive crime from happening. Mm-hmm. And there's this great scene between uh, the actor Donald Sumter, who plays Alexander Bonaparte Cust and David Suchet, who's playing Poirot, 
when um, ABC has been arrested for the murder. And spoiler, he didn't commit the murder. Um, and it's just such a Poirot did. <laughs> Poirot did. It's such a beautifully acted, quiet scene where um, these two actors just really like get into this moment of um, this man who's like really been gaslit mm. for for quite a long time, who who really makes you believe that he thinks he committed a murder or three murders, yeah. four murders, in fact. No, um, three, because he knows he didn't commit the the Bexel one, and that's yeah. why he's so confused. That's true. Um, yeah, so he, and it's just such a great, such a great moment, and I think shows that these adaptations can really capture something almost more human mm. than sometimes what the books can capture. Yeah. Um, well, what you said to me yeah. last night, I thought was so poignant. Where <laughs> in this house we stand, he's sushi. <laughs> but you said he brings a like a human, uh, like a human humanness to the yeah. role that even the book version doesn't really capture. Like mm. he really fully fleshes it out, and he's a little like softer and kinder mm-hmm. than the poor of the books. Yeah. And I think that's really true. Yeah. Yeah, I think David Suchet, um, he often has like, like a glossy eye, at the to the towards the end of of when he's like figured out who the murderer is or he's talking to the victim's family or something. He's he, he he's always got a softness to him mm. um, that I think the Poirot of Agatha Christie doesn't always have. He's mm. a little bit more of like a weird distant character yeah um which totally works for the books and i love the poirot of the agatha christie books but there is something much softer and more um yeah there's just like a A little more papa poirot yeah he there's a gentleness to the david suchet interpretation and i i really do think he's very close to as close to the character as you can be without being inhuman Mm. um and yeah i just love it i think he does such a beautiful job and i I always appreciate those adaptations. Yeah. He adds a lot of depth to the yeah. books that um, – I think the books have depth, but they're a little, like, punchier maybe. And he hmm. he brings, um, like, more pathos. Yeah. Yeah, I think the books have more depth in terms of there's often more characters. Yeah, There's yeah, many yeah, more yeah, plot yeah. points. Mm-hmm. Um, but the character himself. Yeah, exactly. He brings depth to that. I think that's really true. Um, speaking of characters, let's talk a little bit about Hastings. Um, and his would, love of auburn-haired women. Oh, he loves an auburn-haired woman. Um, how realistic is it to bring your best friend on every case that you <laughs> go on? Well, I did get to work with one of my best friends uh, for a while as an investigator, yeah. and I did bring him shout on. Shout out Vincent Kwan. Yeah, shout out to Vincent Kwan. And I did bring him on a lot of cases, and he brought me in a lot of cases. We were both investigators. Yeah. Um, but that was really like a stroke of good luck. Right. And he wasn't like a journalist chronicling your no. exploits. And Hastings isn't even a journalist, by the way. He's just like a dude. Yeah, he's just like a fun guy. Yeah, he's like a bro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's not super common. Yeah. I, <laughs> okay. I don't bring my friends on investigations because there's also your co- best friend. I'm my talking about best. I'm friend. talking about best friend. Are you telling me you want to come on investigations with me, can Becca? I come on yeah, you can come on investigations. I have with a me. leather jacket. Yeah, if you let, if you let me sit on your shoulders, we can wear a really long trench coat. <laughs> oh my god, that would be so fun. We'd be so tall. Yeah, we'd be really tall. Yeah. <laughs> For <laughs> listeners of this podcast who don't know, I am six feet tall. Yeah, and I'm, I'm five foot ten. Yeah. So. It would be tough. Yeah. 
They'd, they'd draft us into the WNBA. <laughs> they'd draft us into the NBA. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, well, I don't, we could d- turn it down for yeah. the WNBA. Um, but no, you don't usually bring your friends. Um, I've tried, and they've said no. There's confidentiality yeah. that goes into these cases, and um, I think I talked to you about it before. Mm-hmm. I like. I, uh, as an investigator, the confidentiality that clients have with their attorneys is extended to me, mm-hmm. uh, at least with the criminal defense cases, mm-hmm. so, because I'm part of the legal team. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody wants to give me information to further help investigate the case, they can give me information knowing that I can't share it with anybody else and yeah. uh, can, can you know, work for them and work work with them. Um, but because there's confidentiality, I'm, I'm not bringing people along with me for ride-alongs. Yeah. And so, I mean, that kind of makes awkward not only the Hastings element, but I think a lot of the, like, Poirot culmination scenes where mm. he, like, tells everyone everything that's happened to that, all of them so that he can, like, up. do this big theatrical reveal. But, like, surely there are some issues there with confidentiality because well, he often also reveals, like, side things that oh, have yeah. nothing to do where he's like, by the way, you were sleeping with your sister. Always. And, then, <laughs> and then you're like, but that doesn't even have to do with the case. He's like, I just wanted to tell you all. Well, in ABC Murders, Carmichael tries to, the the killer tries to shoot himself and Poirot's like, I've taken the bullets out of your gun. <laughs> it's just so over the top. Yeah. But it's fun. Like, those are the elements that make the, like, they're not realistic, but they make the books more fun. Yeah. And honestly, 100 years ago or 80 years ago or whatever, when these books are being written, uh, the stringent legal rules uh, mm, around really these true. cases was were very different. That's true. So there was a lot more leeway. And now, you know, things are in court for years and years and everybody fights over – literally, I've had – you know, I've had attorneys be like, they're fighting with us over a typo in a brief mm-hmm. for months. Right. And you're like, OK, you know, so and it's just a tactic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all just, you know, legal tactics. But, right. um, you know, I think that it's one of the things that makes the books fun. And you have to have that sort of suspension of disbelief right. when you're reading. Yeah. Like as a private investigator and now public investigator, do you read those books and just like want to hit yourself over the head? Or are you like, I can enjoy this because I'm able to like compartmentalize and suspend my disbelief. I don't even think you have to compartmentalize and yeah. suspend your dis- disbelief. I take the things out of it that I enjoy. Yeah. Okay. I, I can, you know, see those little hints and clues and try and solve the puzzle along with them. And it doesn't have to be true to life. It's like yeah. every single movie. I also worked at a coroner's office for a while. And every single movie I watch them, I'm like, that's not what dead people look right. like. But I also think it's like, like, I still enjoy what I'm watching and I enjoy the story right. and the narrative. Right. It's the same with um. Once you've given birth, any like film you see of like a woman giving birth where it's just like a comedy a show where she sweat. where she's like <laughs> screaming and cussing out her partner, but it's like funny, is just like oh, this is the worst. Like this is no- <laughs> nothing like what giving birth is like. But but again, you like you recognize the tropes, and so you can kind of be like, well, this is just part of the narrative. Yeah, exactly. And it's not offensive. Like as an investigator, like probably some of the ways women are depicted on screen is offensive. Whereas like as an investigator, I'm like, I don't care. You're not like they're appropriating investigator culture. How dare you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is for us. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I think you have to be like um, Laura Thompson, who wrote Agatha Christie's biography. Um, talked about a time where she spoke with P.D. James, mm. the very you know famous mystery writer, and um, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. But she kind of had broken down the scene of finding the dead body in the body in the library, mm-hmm. and basically gave a list of reasons of like 
this is why this wouldn't make sense. This wouldn't make sense. Da, 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 da. It goes through the whole thing. And then at the end, she said, but you know what? None of that matters because what she's written is so powerful and so fun and interesting that it doesn't matter that none of it like works forensically. I 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, I've read in the last few months an enormous amount of these yeah, books. Yeah, you have really <laughs> taken on like <laughs> Becca kept on telling me, you kept on telling me like please, you don't need to do do less. Yeah. Do less. <laughs> you you know, I'm a good investigator. You I do are my a research. good investigator. I do my research and uh I was reading these books and like none of them are forensic forensically accurate in any way. Right. And I'm sure part of that is like the ability to actually access that sort of like information yeah. and images and understand what that looks like. But like right. people are getting stabbed and shot all the time. I've seen nary an account of blood. Right. Everyone's like stabbed in the exact right place to die instantaneously. <laughs> right. Like there's yeah, just Yeah, we no. talked about yesterday how like um it actually takes a lot of strength and a long time to strangle somebody. Mm-hmm. But in all the Agatha Christie books, when someone gets strangled, it's like, and then they like put their hands around her neck for three seconds and then she was dead. It's like that yeah. person wouldn't even be coughing. <laughs> I know. <They'd> be like, <laughs> <laughs> Sir, get your hands off me. Yeah, that tickles. <laughs> yeah, I think also there's like a san- like a sanitized sort yeah. of like she's a woman of her time. She doesn't want to be like the bloody corpse was like spilling its goo all over. You know, she's just, she's just not going to. You should be a writer. Yeah. <laughs> the Bloody Corpse and Its Goo by yeah. Ashley Norman. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. No, that's right. I think, yeah, she, A, she didn't have really necessarily know. Mm-hmm. B, the science wasn't even necessarily, it certainly wasn't where it is today. Where yeah, we absolutely. Would, the public in general wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, that's not what she wanted to use her time doing. It's also not what the books are about. The yeah. books aren't about, like, one of the things that I love is, like, the cozy murder aspect, right? Yeah. These are all people that are – actually, ABC is a little bit different because a yeah. lot of these are random people that are murdered for no reason. And, and quite sad, yeah. And that's sad. But, like, most of the Agatha Christie books, the people that are murdered, they're like, he was a terrible person and everybody around him hated him. Yeah. And anyway, he's murdered. Let's solve the crime. <laughs> yeah. You know? like, And that's why you can enjoy it is because the, the stakes of the actual murder itself is so low. Or that's so right. Low. That's right. And I, Yeah, and I think – that is an interesting element of this book, which is that the stakes are much higher because, A, it could potentially go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start with A. Be 26 Yeah, letters. you're ending at Z, right? That's, yeah. that's scary. Get some other alphabets in there, some other <laughs> languages. Know, the Cyrillic <laughs> alphabet. Um, and, and then the other element is they really – Agatha Christie really takes you to the homes and mm. families of the people who've been murdered, which is not something she does all that often. Um and especially, I find especially affecting is um, uh, Betty. Mrs. Betty's yeah. parents, but mm-hmm. also Mrs. Asher's thought, yeah. niece, yeah. who is really so sad that she's lost this person in her life who she was expecting to come to the, the cinema with her the following yeah, for week. Her birthday. For her birthday, we were going to have a treat together. And, and she's this woman who's had such a hard life, really lived in poverty. Yeah. And had, like suffered domestic violence at the hands of her husband yeah. for many, many years and yeah. sort of finally was free of that to an extent. Yeah. And so there, there are some real – there's some real moments of empathy. And I think Poirot actually says at one point that he feels so sad for Mrs. Asher because yeah. she, she lived a hard life. Yeah. Um, and she had these little – things to look forward to and now she wouldn't have them. So mm. uh, there's actually some emotional heft, I think, to this book yeah. that a lot of the other murders don't necessarily have. Sometimes it's in a different relationship in the book that you find some emotional heft. But these these murders actually have that. And then there's the emotional heft of this character who's he's a war veteran. He's mm. got epilepsy. He's 
been gaslit into thinking that he's committed these murders yeah. um, and basically has resigned himself to being hung for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poirot comes along and says, like, I'm not going to let you kind of lie down and until we figured out what really happened here. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot more uh, depth to this yeah. one than actually a lot of the others. Yeah, I think of all of the ones that I've read, like a lot of them are like a bit of fun because yeah. it, they have really like such low stakes. Mm-hmm. And this one, um, because there's so many people that are murdered and so many people that are affected by it and because Poirot feels so like pulled into it because yeah. he's the one receiving these letters. He feels so much more responsible. I yeah, think. which ends up being totally incidental, by the way, like has nothing to do with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think that the book has sort of a different, tonally is different and has kind mm. of a different weight to it than a lot of her other books. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, as you said, like their other ones can be kind of like a bit of fun. Um, and even, the yeah, the murder feels incidental and so this is a this is I think that's why it's been adapted so many times. Mm. I think it's why it will continue to be adapted. I think yeah. it's why it's been one of her most popular ones for so many years. Um, it's got, uh, yeah, it's got a heart. Yeah, that I think uh, many of her books. Not that her books don't have heart, but they, it has a reason for being beyond. Poirot saying, I don't approve of murder, which yeah. is often what he has to end up saying, because if he like doesn't really care, if none of us care about the person who gets murdered, there has to be a reason right. he's so invested. Right. And his reason is this bourgeois idea of like, I simply don't approve of murder. People shouldn't get away with it. Um, and so he doesn't have to say this in this one, because, yeah. of course, none of us approve of parents losing a child and an elderly woman being hit over the head. And, yeah. you know. Um, it's 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 much more obvious. Yeah, it's one of the only books of hers. That, it was actually of the the twenty books I got out of the library. <laughs> it was the first one that I read because mm-hmm. you know you and I had discussed yeah. which book I should I should read and mm-hmm. we wanted to talk about and it was this one. Um, so I read it first and I it was the one that I I think about the most. Mm-hmm. Like it really is the one that I'm glad you suggested it oh, because good. it's the one that I uh, I really feel like I connected to the most. That's so good. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I, I I I reread this one frequently, mm. and I think there's like you know of the sixty six <laughs> books of the thirty three thirty three Poirots, there are probably fifteen that I reread frequently, and this one only is fifteen. Only 15. <laughs> I know, but you get through them so fast. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but this one is one of them. I mm. really can come back to this one again and again, and I really always enjoy it. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you about is the twist in this book is yeah. a great twist. Have you ever had a twist as a as a public or private investigator? Yeah, and, and is that and is the twist like a a real thing? Like, are there twists, or are you just like, yeah, like everything just happens and it's anticlimactic? <laughs> yes and no. Yeah, there are twists, but it's hard to call them a. It's it's a twist is a great literary device. Yeah, it's a hard thing to think about in the context of real people's yes. lives because yeah. it's at that point it's affecting somebody and like their ability to to live freely and live a full life right. um but yeah i've had twists like i i had have you ever had a moment where you were just like <gasps> oh, oh my god oh yeah oh, okay. okay can you tell us the story yeah i, I won't give any details okay. obviously okay. but um i had a homicide case that i was investigating when you were a private investigator. when i was a private investigator okay. and um the person who had been arrested for the crime um, and he, he had been in jail for a number of years at that point and was quite, quite a young person. Mm-hmm. And um, the police knew that he hadn't 
been the the killer in the in the crime. They wow. uh, they so he if you are like basically a party to the crime, if you're there when the crime is committed, you can be charged with murder as well. Mm-hmm. And they said you were there, and so we're charging you. Um, and the person who they knew was the um, the the killer in this instance had died a few months after the incident took place, and so they couldn't be charged. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had tracked down a witness who lived – well, not lived. They were in jail uh, out, out, of, out of the area. And so I had to go far – Like out, to another state. Yeah. I had yeah. to go – well, you know, D.C. is not a state, but I had to go to another region of the country to yeah. go meet with this person and get special permission to go speak with them in jail. And they told me that the – person who they the police knew to be the shooter but that he had told him that he like could, confessed he confessed to him that he had committed the crime alone and nobody else was there and our client had nothing to do with it Whoa. which com- was completely exculpatory for him and right. he was released <gasps> afterwards so Chills. Chills. <laughs> so for a case like that the twist i mean sure it's like maybe a little you know they 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 said he was there and he wasn't there but yeah. uh the tw- the twist um, ended up saving his his life. His he would life, have spent yeah. the rest of his life in jail. Yeah. Or, you know, 30 years or whatever, and he would have left an old man, and he get, you know, he's out living his life now, so. that's And you did that. Well, the, that's, that's, well, that's the, I mean, we can talk about. I didn't about, do that. Well, you, you were one of the people who did it, and I think, like. I, I, I got on the plane and went and talked to the guy who, who gave us, you know. If you the, hadn't done that, it wouldn't if we have happened. If we yeah. hadn't found that witness and got, you know, he yeah. obviously couldn't come to us to tell us that right. information. So if we hadn't found that witness and I hadn't gone out there and spoken yeah. to him, we, you know, this this uh, person would be living a very different life right now. And I think that is such an amazing example of, like, a real life, how, how these kind of cases move forward. And obviously this was a years-long effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but But it also really lends some credence to the idea that investigators are... It's not just kind of the background work. It can be really life-changing work uh, within a case. Yeah, and you get close to the people that you work with, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the You spend years being kind of, the, you know, at least while I was doing that work and I was I spent a lot of time going to the jail and you mm-hmm. kind of are their lifeline in a lot of ways yeah. because they don't have social interaction with people outside of the jail other yeah. than their attorneys and their legal team. So yeah. um, in that way, it's like a kind of a privilege to be able to to go there and make them feel heard and try mm-hmm. and actually, you know, make sure that they're they're treated with respect. And if there's evidence to get them out of there, make sure it's found and get yeah. them out of there so they can live their lives. Yeah. And that is exactly what Poirot does for, yeah, for ABC. That's exactly what he does for yeah. ABC. And that, that great scene in the adaptation, I think, is like a really great um, kind of representation of what that feels like, which is that it's quiet. It's listening to someone. It's hearing what they have to say and and believing them. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing them as human. Yeah. And I think ultimately, uh, as an investigator, that's what's important to me is like making sure people's stories are told Mm -hmm. and that we get as close to the truth as we can. Yeah. So, I mean... Are you Poirot? Maybe not, but it sounds like you guys have more I'm in common on... than you. You guys have more in common than you might think. I'm working on my mustache. We'll see. <laughs> it's actually looking nice today. Thank Give you. Give it a little twirl. You get a little. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I don't think you need to make the sound. Well, people don't need to hear. They that. can't see it, Rebecca. It's a <laughs> podcast. We'll put in the episode notes a picture of my sister's mustache. <laughs> it's just. Are you just gonna Photoshop David Sushi's yes, mustache? That's exactly face. what I'm gonna do. 
Um, Ash, would you like to be found? And if so, where could people find you? Yeah, they can call me on my personal cell phone. The number is... Please don't give out your personal cell phone number. Please cut this. Don't give out your personal cell phone number. Uh, if you want to steal my identity, my social security no. number is... Cut it. Cut it. <laughs> Ashley. You're a terrible. If you want to get in touch, you can reach out to my secretary, Rebecca Norman, through the yeah. Tea and Murder podcast. <laughs> tea and Murder podcast at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with Ashley, we will pass the message along. Uh, you don't have any social media. I don't. I don't. Ha- I have social media, but it is it's inv- for investigative. Yeah, it's for investigatory purposes. Yeah. So uh, if I'll find you. <laughs> if you'd like to be found, if you'd like email to be found. me and Ashley will find you. Yeah. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast, Ashley. You can't, can't see Oh, well. Thank you to our producer, Kate Grishel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. This is our last episode of the season, so thank you for joining us for season one of Tea and Murder. Season two will come out in the fall, but we'll be dropping a few little gems in between, so keep an eye on your podcast feed and Instagram. Thanks for joining us for this season of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.